I want you to turn with me, if you could, to Nehemiah uh, chapter 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, and just over the week, just to share with you just what the Lord has been doing in my own life, just as I've been seeking the Lord, I've really, I've really tried to seek the Lord for, to hear what God would say, that he would say to the, to the church in the midst of all of their, so many voices and so many things that we're being directed to, so many things that we're hearing. I felt it was important uh, to seek the Lord and to really hear what is the Lord saying to his people in the midst of this trial. What is God saying? What is God desiring to do amongst the church of Jesus Christ? And there, you know, there are so many things that can influence our thinking, our praying and our lives, but we want to be influenced by the Holy Spirit. And that is crucial for us that we're influenced by the Holy Spirit and the purpose of God, what God is saying to his people in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this virus. What is the Spirit of the Lord speaking? And so I want you to turn with me this morning. I do a prayer that was made. This prayer was made in 444 BC. That's when this prayer, this cry was an intercession that went up uh, from this man, Nehemiah, he was a critical, crucial leader in, in Israel at this time. He was a man that was raised up by the Lord. He had a burden. He had the burden of the Lord. He had a cry in his heart. Uh, it was an intercession, but it was a, a man that was used of the Lord to see again the rebuilding or the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. And this morning, I just the title that I give to this message is the cry that God is waiting for. The cry that God is waiting for. In Nehemiah chapter one, I want us to read this prayer, the prayer of Nehemiah, four hundred and forty-four years before the birth of Christ. Nehemiah chapter one and verse five. And he said, "I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God." that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes opened, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But... If ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants 
who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And we know that Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. This is the cry. I believe that when I speak this morning, I believe God has put a burden on this heart. I pray that God would help what the burden is be translated by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The cry that God is waiting for, the intercession, the faith, uh, the tears, the fasting, and the repentance amongst the people of God. This is the cry that God awaits. The cry of Nehemiah. The cry of a heart of a man that has the burden of the Lord. There's a Nehemiah people that have the heart of God that are beginning to cry on the hymn both day and night, confessing the sins of the people. Nehemiah himself was a righteous man, a man that was living right before the Lord. But he understood that what was happening was greater than the individual. He understood that there was an intercession that needed to go up on the behalf of the people to cry unto the Lord for mercy in this time. The context, of course, if you bear with me this morning, I believe it's important because the parallels are so vivid, so real. And I believe that God would speak to us through these precious scriptures this morning to reveal to us his heart, his desire, and what God is waiting to hear from his people. The context here, 444 BC, we just have to go back a little further to understand what had happened and how Nehemiah came to the place that he was in and the prayer that came forth from the heart of this man. And 539 BC, now you just bear with me please for a moment, but in 539 BC was a crucial time in the history of Israel. We know that God had brought a judgment upon Israel and through the word of Jeremiah that the Babylonian Empire rose up, came to Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. God's people were under judgment. They were scattered and taken captive by Babylon and that would be for 70 years. At the fulfillment of that prophecy according to the word of the Lord. Now you will hear this often in the scripture because there's always the patterns in scripture that we follow. Men will always point back to what the word of the Lord said according, we've already read it this morning, according to thy servant Moses, according to the word of thy servant Jeremiah, there was a pattern that would follow through scripture. So we want to work according to the pattern in God's word, not the pattern of man, not the thoughts of man, not the opinions of man, but according to the word of the Lord. In 539, it was a key point in the history of Israel. As Babylon, that empire that had taken a God's people captive, God, by at this point, was about to move sovereignly in the nations of the world. Babylon is a significant uh, name in Bible prophecy. Not only the empire of 539, this is why it's important, the parallels, but Babylon is also significant according to Revelation 14 and Revelation 18. We touched on it last week. Babylon is a spiritual empire, a kingdom, the kingdoms of this world are joining together of many things. We'll even look more at this tonight. 
But Babylon would fall, 539 BC. God would raise up sovereignly by God's almighty hand a king, the great king, the Persian king, the king Cyrus the Great would rise up sovereignly by the hand of almighty God with the purpose of overthrowing Babylon. God had a plan, a purpose that was about to unfold. We understand this morning, this is important. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 tells us that every soul be subject under the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be ordained of God. This morning, whoever is our leaders, wherever we're listen, listening from, but our leaders in Stormont, Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill are there ordained of God. We may have voted as a nation. They may have been put into their places because people have voted for them. But we must understand that there is a sovereign God that puts men and women in positions. He puts them there and he takes them away. The man that's sitting in 10 Downing Street this morning is ordained of Almighty God. He is sovereign over all the earth and all the nations of the earth. And we're subject to those powers that God has ordained. The man that's in the White House currently is there not because people voted for him. That happens in the practical way, but in the sovereign purposes of God, the President of the United States, Donald Trump, is there not by man, but he is there ordained by an Almighty God. And we're subject to those powers. Here we see, here we see Almighty God that he is moving in the nations back in 539 he has sovereignly purposed that there would be a king that would rise up a heathen king Cyrus the great that God would raise him up for the purpose to overthrow Babylon but the great purpose and plan was more than overthrowing Babylon this spiritual Babylon that we read of in Revelation and Bible prophecy found in Revelation 14 and 18. If you just look at it for one moment, but we'll come to this more. Revelation 18 speaks of another Babylon, not the empire found here in that Old Testament. But there is an end time Babylon. And it will fall just like that Old Testament one. Revelation 18 gives us an insight into this Babylon and its spiritual content. Revelation 18 and 2, it says... There was a mighty cry with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. We see that this end time Babylon and the fall of it, but the spiritual substance is described so explicitly to us. It's the dwelling place of devils. It's the hold of every foul spirit. It's the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That means that the present world in which we live, that is the Babylonian system, as it begins to crumble and fall, we are witnessing and seeing through our eyes that this place is a habitation of devils. There is every type of foul spirit currently at work. At the minute, the focus is all on the virus and everything that's happening with this pandemic. But the people of God must understand and see, even beyond this current crisis, that there is a Babylon that is filled with wickedness. It's the habitation of every devil and every foul spirit. And this is the Babylon that we are coming up against in these moments of time. At the time of the fall of Babylon in 539, this ushered in a significant time 
of renewal and restoration amongst the people of God. Now, I want you to see this this morning. You raised up Cyrus to overthrow the Babylonians. But it wasn't about Cyrus the Great, neither was it about Babylon and that empire. God had an eternal purpose, and that purpose was his people. At that time, that people were Israel. That's the people of God that God had chosen. And now we see the eternal purposes of God was not about the king of Persia, nor was it of the king of the Babylonians, but God had an eternal purpose that he was unfolding amongst his people, Israel. So we go to Ezra chapter 1. If you follow this for a moment, I'm going to bring you to what the Lord, I believe, is saying. The cry that God is waiting for is this title, Ezra chapter 1. We see then that God works again according to his word. He's working according to his purpose and his plan. Now in Ezra chapter 1, it says these words, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Do you see what the word of God is saying? Jeremiah the prophet, the weeping prophet, had prophesied of the things that would come to pass and when it would be fulfilled. Now we see because he was speaking unto the unction and the anointing of God, God would honor his word that he had given to the prophet. The prophet was faithful in delivering the message from the heart of God. And now God would fulfill his purposes according to the mouth of Jeremiah. Now God moves. Look at this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout the kingdom of God, saying, The Lord of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the world and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So we see that the Spirit of God begins to move in the midst of this calamity. If you were alive at that time, we see a nation rising up. We see war. We see that this heathen king rises up against another heathen king. If you were one of God's people in Israel at that time, scattered and in Babylonian captivity, you had to witness some amazing things and awful things take place. But God had a purpose in the midst of all of that. God was speaking. In Ezra 1 and 5, the chief of the fathers then that were in Babylonian captivity, the Bible tells us they rose up. Old men rose up out of captivity. The priests, the Levites, the fathers of Judah and Benjamin, with all them whose spirit God had begun to raise up, there was something that began to rise amongst the people of God. Just like I believe that there needs to come a rising within the hearts of God's people. There is a rising up in this day in which we're living in a backsliddenness of coldness and difference in the midst of this pandemic. It's not the pandemic, brothers and sisters. It's what God is purposing in the midst. We see that the spirit of the old man began to rise to go again to build the house of the Lord, which was in Jerusalem. We see as that first gathering got themselves together and the vessels of gold and verse 11 and Ezra 1 and of silver and, 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 they, and these did as Shezbazar 
bring them up with the captivity that were brought from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Men began to rise up to build again the house of the Lord. There was a spiritual awakening in hearts. There was a sovereign move of God as kingdoms began to fall and kingdoms were raised up. But God's purpose wasn't in Cyrus and the kingdom of Persia, nor in the kingdom of the Babylonians. God's purpose was amongst his people. The first thing when they arrived, you know the story if you turn over to Ezra chapter 3 and verse 2. As they arrived back to see the destruction, to see that the temple had been pulled down and destroyed and the altar was gone and the walls were broken. But the first thing they understood that they must do when they return is found in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 2. Now I want to show you the parallels and the, the truth that God would want to bring to us. Ezra 3 and verse 2, it says, Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to burn offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now you see here again that they were constantly working according to the pattern of God's word. They were constantly looking to what way God said it should be. The first thing that they did was place that altar upon bases, for the fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. The first thing they understood according to the word of the Lord. Now we must put in place again that altar, that altar that had been decimated, that altar that had been taken away. But they understood the approach to God was through an Old Testament altar that was soaked with the blood of bulls and goats. And we know this morning, brothers and sisters, that in the new covenant in his blood, the only approach to an almighty God is through Calvary and through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. The only way we can approach glory this morning and a king that sits on the throne is by the blood of the Lamb. And so they put the altar back in its place. They put Calvary back at the center of their hearts, their families, their homes. They put Calvary at the center of the church of Jesus Christ again. This is truly the very heart of God. Any renewal or any restoration or any revival that does not begin at Calvary, that does not start and end with the Calvary, with Christ, with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross, is no revival or no restoration. They understood there was a glory. They understood there was a Shekinah presence of Almighty God. They longed again. They longed again for the glory of the Lord to come, the divine and the manifest presence of Almighty God amongst His people. That's why the Bible tells us in Ezra 3 that the chief of the fathers, who were the ancient men, when they seen had seen the first house, when the foundation of the house was laid, that's why the Bible says they wept with a loud voice. This made old men weep. When they remembered the glory and the power and the presence and the Shekinah power of God amongst his people, that caused the old men to weep. They knew that there was something at a loss, but they longed again for the power, the presence, the glory of Almighty God amongst his people. This is what makes men weep. This is what makes men cry to God when they see the deadness when they see the apathy, the backsliddenness, when they see the division, when they see all the carnality, when they see the worldliness, and they know there's a glory, 
They know there's a power and a presence. But friends, that does not come until there's a Calvary that's put at the center. You cannot have a renewal and a power and the glory of God without the cross of Jesus. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. A well-known verse this morning. 1 Corinthians 1 and 18. For the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. It's a return to the cross. It's a return to Calvary. It's a return to what the cross means, to where Jesus died, to where the work was finished, to where Christ himself gave himself as a ransom and the preaching of the cross to us that are saved. It is the part of God. It is the part of God. What has happened tragically, brothers and sisters, and things must be said is that we that we have come to a day and Nehemiah put himself amongst the people. He didn't stand proud in the corner saying, I'm not like them. I've always walked with God. My walk's been impeccable. I'm such a great and grand individual. He grasped the heart of God amongst the people and began to cry for the people of God that there be repentance. Lord, we have sinned against thee. The cry came. In the midst of a time when so much was just at ease in Zion. What has happened in our day is there's been a manufacturing, a creating of feeling, a replacement for the reality with all the things that have come in to the church of Jesus Christ. We have moved away from the preaching of the cross. We have psychology. We have every type of manipulation. We have Worship explosions in place of the preaching of the cross of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. This is what it is. It is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God. And so they understood forever to be the glory. And an outpouring. And the presence. And a Pentecost. And again there must again be Calvary at the center of it all. He'll speak of no one else. He'll glorify no one else. He'll lift up no other name but the name of Jesus. That's the blessed Holy Spirit. Today we get back individually. If we get back in our families. If we get back corporately to the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. Surely the Holy Ghost will flood our churches again with the glorious resurrection power of the cross of Jesus. They put the altar back. That was the first thing. They longed for the glory. The glory that was gone made old men weep. Old men wept when they remembered there was a glory once in the church. There was a glory in the meetings. There was a glory on the faces of the people of God. There was a joy in their hearts. There was an expression. There was a servant Jesus with gladness. And old men wept when they thought of the glory. But they knew they had to put an altar back. They completed that altar around the year 516 B.C. Even under much opposition and much grief and, and people against them. But they knew that they needed to set themselves to seek the Lord. Thank God that the cross is a finished work. 
Thank God you can't add to it. You cannot take away from it. Thank God this morning that Calvary precedes Pentecost. And thank God for Pentecost that the blessed Holy Spirit has come. They completed the task. But friends, this morning, they knew that there was a building program still to be done. The cross is a finished work. Jesus cried, it is finished. But do you know this morning, and I know, that he is now building, he is now building his church. The Bible says in Matthew 16, Jesus speaking to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, this rock is Jesus, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. A spiritual building, a spiritual habitation, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 and 20 that we are built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together. This is what the purpose of an assembly is, of a gathering together, a habitation of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Truly, this is what a habitation is this morning. It is when God's people, I know He lives in me, but God has purposed an assembly, a fellowship, a structure, a function with different ministries, with elders, with deacons, with teachers, with evangelists, with an under-shepherd that would lead and speak for God in the midst of it. God has purposed it that way. To be a habitation of God, a living God. God would dwell, not in the building, but when God's people come together in that building, God the Holy Spirit would move in His glory, just like that upper room. Here we see there's a building project that had fallen down. The walls, the walls, 516, the temple, the altar's finished. But the walls remain broken down. For 70 odd years the people lived with no wall. They had the altar and the temple. They had, as it were, the finished work. They had the power of the Holy Ghost. But the walls were broken down. And the walls speak of the church of Jesus Christ. We can say in this hour, not with anything other than a broken heart, not with anything other than a yearning and a longing for the church, the body of Christ, to cross this island and across the world, to rise up again in the power of the Holy Ghost with nothing but the cross of Jesus. The walls were significant. Why? Why for 70 years they'd lived exposed. They'd lived with broken walls, a temple and an altar. But the walls were divinely ordained by God himself. Here's some things about the wall. The wall was a divine demarcation between the outside, it's obvious, and the inside. It was clear that it was a difference between the world and the church. When the walls are down, there's no distinction. There's no distinction between the holy and the prevailing. I'm not talking this morning that you wear a suit that makes you different. I'm talking about there was a life. There was something different. They were holy men. They were made holy by the power of the blood and the Holy Spirit. 
They were people of a different sort. In other words, they were different to the world. They didn't speak like the world, act like the world, go to the places where the world went to. Surely we can see it for ourselves that the walls are broken. There's no line that separates the church and the world anymore. The wall was also a defense against the gates of hell. I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Here we see that we're against wickedness, principalities and powers. Our warfare is a spiritual one. We are not fighting viruses. We are fighting principalities and powers. We are fighting an antichrist system, an antichrist world. We are standing up for Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. The walls had watchtowers speaking of prayer and intercession where people would get into that place with God. They begin to pray and intercede and cry unto the Lord. They would watch and they would warn and they would proclaim. Sadly, when the walls are broken down, the prayer closets are empty. The prayer meetings are empty. Intercession ceases. The watchman ceases to cry out and warn the people. Isaiah 62 and verse 6 says, I have set watchmen on thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their, their peace day or nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silent. Give him no rest till he established, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. With no walls, there's no watchmen. When the walls are down, there's no watchmen that cry, that know what it is to intercede. No, we've had, brothers and sisters, for decades now, as men that are entertaining the people, tickling their ears, at ease in Zion, but not warning, and not proclaiming, and not watching, and not praying. The walls had gates. That each had a significant spiritual truth attached to them. It speaks of that true ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's another series in itself. But they were burnt out. The walls were built up of stones that have been hewn out. Oh, thank God for the church of Jesus Christ. I've heard many wild statements made about the assemblies, about church and what it's supposed to be. But God has ordained it and purposed it to be a habitation of God. We are lively stones. We're a spiritual house. We miss the fellowship of God's people. We long for fellowship because God has ordained it. A holy priesthood. A place to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. For 70 years, there was no wall. The people largely had been content to, to live as it were that they'd come back. They had an altar. They had a temple. And they seen no reason to build. Whether they were tired, whether they were content, whether they were in apathy, whether they were backslidden, there's a whole mixture of many things. But the walls, you see, Nehemiah knew there was a wall that needed to be built. He had a vision. He had a heart. He had a purpose. He had a plan. And he was raised by God. There's a Nehemiah people that know that the church of Jesus Christ is God's plan. Nehemiah 1 and 2, this is what broke his heart. It says that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, concerning Jerusalem. Here's about 70 years later. Here's a man that's asking the questions. How, how are things at Jerusalem? 
And he said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity, they're in the province. This is what happened because the walls are down. They had an altar and a temple. They're in great affliction. They're in reproach. The wall also, the wall also is broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when he heard these words that he sat down and that he wept and that he mourned and that he fasted and that he prayed the prayer that we quoted before the God of heaven. Is there men that are concerned about the church of Jesus Christ? Concerned about what has happened, where it's come to? Concerned at the decay? Concerned at the great departure? Concerned at the manufacturing? Concerned at all the different isms that swept into the church? Concerned at all the things that have become the focus and all the pet subjects and all the pet doctrines and we've moved away from Calvary and the power of Pentecost. Is there a man concerned? Friends, I believe there are some that are. There are some that have the burden of the Lord. There are some that weep. There are some that long again. The altar and the temple stood in its place, but the walls were broken down. The spiritual significance is this, brothers and sisters. We can positively confess all day. We can have all our things in place and all our gadgets and all our music and all everything all in place and those things are not wrong. But brothers and sisters, more than any of those things, we need again to get back to Calvary and the power of Pentecost. So God in his mercy, what would he do? God would send them prophets. These men had a message from the heart of God. The people at this time were indifferent, backslidden, cold in heart, left their first love, serving two masters. Many had lost the fire and the passion that they once served the Lord with. And these prophets would be sent of the Lord. They're known as the post-exile prophets. They would be sent of the Lord and they begin to hurl the heart of God to bring the people again to repentance and God's purpose. You see, they get used to not having the wall. A lot of people today have a lot of opinions about the church. You don't need it. You don't need to go. You don't need to be part of anything. You don't. It's so unscriptural, so tragic in the day we're in. So let's consider these men that came, these prophets. There's Haggai. Look at him for a moment. There's Zechariah. There's Malachi. These post-exile prophets would come with the burden of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, turn to Haggai. I want to see, show you the theme of their message that came. Haggai, just prior to the completion of the temple, God would send this man. And this is what he said, Haggai 1 and verse 3. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. Is it time, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and the house of God lying waste? Now therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, God then said, consider your ways. You see, brothers and sisters, I believe that God has said to his church at this time, consider your ways. Consider how you've lived. Consider your ways. That was the heart of God. Consider why the work of the Lord lies in waste. The laborers are few, but the harvest is full. The fields are white, but pray for the laborers. 
Is it right that you lie in your house of all the blessings that we have and all the material substance that we have accumulated and the house of the Lord lie in waste? Consider your ways. You have sown much, you bring in little, you eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, you're not filled. You're clothed, but there is no warmth. You earn wages, earn as wages to put it in a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, listen what he's saying, consider your ways. Haggai 1 and 12, thank God that the Zerubbabel, the son of Shetel, the Joshua, the son of Josedach, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, when the prophet brought the word of the Lord, when God spoke into their hearts, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They responded to the word of the Lord. The people did that and feared the Lord. Look at Zechariah for a moment. And we can't go through it all, but look at Zechariah for a moment. We're coming to a close in just a few moments. Zechariah chapter 1. Again, just at the same time as Haggai, they were contemporaries. In the eighth month, verse, it says in Zechariah 1 and 1, In the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Bacchariah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. The Lord was grieved with what had happened. Anybody dare say that the Lord is grieved with what has happened amongst his people and amongst the churches? You believe God is grieved with the with the divisions, with with the infighting, with the splits, with the with the backsliddenness? Do you believe he's grieved with the immorality? Do you believe he's grieved with the fall? I believe he is. Maybe it's not maybe it's not popular to say because we take some of the doctrines of of this great God, and we use them to try and bat back from God dealing with our hearts. But, oh, friends, if we want to see truly the glory of God and a move of Spirit of God in these days, we got to know that God wants to deal with us in his mercy. He was sore displeased with what we had made it. The Lord of hosts says, Turn ye unto me, and I will turn unto you. God comes not with a message to destroy them, but a message to call them again to repent and come back. If you turn to me, I'm going to turn to you. I'll come to you. That's the heart of God. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Turn ye now from your evil ways, from your evil doings. But your fathers did not hear nor hearken unto me. God would send them. And God would faithfully plead with them in his mercy to turn to him. But they thought they were smarter than God. A lot of people think they're smarter than God. A lot of people think they're smarter than his ways. No more. There was a cry in the heart of God to say, turn back to me, but I'll turn to you. We turn over into Malachi, and this is very quickly. But you'll read these books and you can see the theme. Malachi 1 and 1, the burden of the Lord. And this is about 440 B.C., before that intertestamental period, the burden of the word of the Lord by Israel. Lord to Israel by Malachi. Nobody begins with saying, the Lord says, I've loved you. People may be listening today, and I want to tell you, God says, I've loved you. You've left me. You've left your first love. You've turned away. You're more interested in the things of the world. You're more interested in material possessions. You once had a burden and a passion and a love for Jesus. A love for his word, a love for prayer, a love for the things of God, part of a fellowship, wherever that may be, belonging and giving into it and being part of the ministry. But now you're you're just a you're just like someone 
just going along at your own pace, doing your own thing, and the Lord says, I've loved you, but you've left me. I've said I'll never leave you, but you've left me. You've left your first love. Malachi 1 and 6, he says these words, if you follow it through, a son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where's mine honor? God said, where's my honor? And if I be a master, where's my fear? And the Lord said, of hosts said unto you, O priest that despise my name, you say, wherein have we despised? You polluted bread upon mine altar, and you say, wherein have we polluted bread? We cannot see where we've gone wrong. The table of the Lord is contemptible. If you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? If you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased? Or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts. What you give to God, if you give it to your master, if you give it to your, your boss and work, would he be pleased? What he's saying is that I'm somewhere way down the line in your life. I'm no longer your all. I'm no longer your first. I'm no longer everything. I'm somewhere down the line that, in some way that you give everything of your best to everything else. But when it comes to God, we'll tick some box. We'll do some small duty and say, that's enough. And yet he's redeemed us with his own precious blood. He's purchased us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We belong to Jesus. Yet he says, you've left me. You think it's some 20-minute effort on a Sunday, uh, some tick-box thing that you can do. That's, that's it, serving Jesus. That's what it's about when Christ gave his life on the cross to die for you. That we have been redeemed with the blood of the Lamb and we can sing a couple of hymns on a Sunday, sing a song on a Sunday morning and just go through the motions and that's it. That's Christianity. That's not the cross. Many will say to me on that day, saith the Lord, but we've done all these things in your name and it said, depart from me, I never knew you. Malachi 1 and 11, from the rising of the sun even to the going down of the same, the Lord says, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And every place incense shall be offered to my name, a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. He said to Israel, but you have prevented. The table of the Lord is polluted. Behold, what a weariness it is. It's a weariness to serve God. What a weariness, and ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. You have brought that which was torn and lame and sick, and brought it as an offering. Should I accept this at your hand, saith the Lord? Should I take it? Is that what God deserves? We have snuffed at the table of the Lord. We have, been we have been contemptible in His sight with what weariness we serve the Lord. What has happened is the walls that have been broken down. He says, return unto me, Malachi 3 and 7, and I'll return unto you, says the Lord of hosts. The cry is for God to bring His people back in repentance to get right with Him. We've robbed God. We've robbed God of what belongs to him. Will a man rob God? We have robbed him in the tithes and in the offerings. Brothers and sisters, God is no man's debtor. God sees it all. And the cry in the midst of it as he sends these prophets is, Turn to me. You know, Haggai, come back to him for a moment. But Haggai brought a word in the midst of all of this for a people to rise up, for a people to turn unto God. But what he did promise them was this, that the glory of the latter house, Haggai 2 and 9, shall be greater than the former. There was an end time glory that would be greater than what they've ever known or seen. God was looking at people to turn back. 
Nehemiah hears of those walls that are broken down. And he begins to weep. And he begins to fast. And he begins to pray. And he says, O God, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant, have mercy. Mercy for them that love him and those that walk in his ways. Let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be open. You'll hear the prayer of your servant. Lord, we confess our sins. We confess the sins of our fathers. We confess the sins of our nation. We confess the sins that have taken place even in the church of Jesus Christ. We have dealt. Nehemiah put himself amongst them like Daniel, true man of God. We have dealt. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us what we have made it. Remember, we beseech you the word that you commanded Moses. If you will transgress, you will scatter us. You will bring a judgment upon us. But you said, Lord, if we turn and we keep and we do, though we were cast down, yet you will gather your people and bring them to the place that you have chosen your name to be there. O God, thou who has redeemed us by thy great power and thy strong hand, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day. Grant them mercy. Grant us mercy, Lord. Grant us mercy. Saints, this morning, you're listening. Consider our ways before the Lord. It's a time that we get right. It's a time we put things in place. It's a time where we have an altar. It's a time where we have the Holy Ghost, but it's a time where the walls must be built again, where we see again Calvary, the cross, the power of the Holy Ghost, the glory of God. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. There are things that we need to put right, things that we need to repent of. I believe there is as a company, as a church, we need to say, God, forgive us for what it's become. Forgive us for what's going on in your name. Forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, we turn to you because we long for your glory that this place would be a habitation of God to the Spirit. Lord, forgive us for our pride, our stubbornness. Lord, forgive us for our willingness to submit ourselves to your will and to your way, for the hardness of our hearts. Lord, forgive us for the loose tongues. Forgive us, Lord, for holding back. Forgive us for not giving, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for... For, Lord, forgiving you, Lord, the, the seconds and the thirds and even the very dregs of our lives. Lord, we lay all in the altar and we say, Lord, forgive us. Oh, I tell you, this is, this is, this is the cry God is waiting for. Father, this morning, Lord, we pray, Jesus, in your mercy, your great love, Lord, that you would reach into every heart and draw us again to Calvary. Lord, we pray for an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Lord, we pray for a building of these walls, the building of your church, the church of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we pray that we would consider our ways. May there be a cry come up from within us. Lord, for mercy. We know that you'll hear and you'll answer prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.